Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Health Care on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. Well, with the greater use of electronic health records, I think there's greater privacy concerns. I want to make sure my records aren't disseminated widely. Um, all sorts of other things are happening in the electronic world, too, with online doctor rating and, and privacy issues that raises. Um, today we're going to be speaking with an attorney who specializes uh, in these issues. I have Alicia Galeski. She's partner-elect with the law firm of Smith Anderson in Raleigh, North Carolina. She concentrates her practice in the areas of information privacy and security, technology, and intellectual property licensing. She counsels companies in a variety of industries, including health information technology, retail, banking, and Internet and e-commerce. She regularly advises on issues related to HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, if I remember right, and the High Tech Act. And, Alicia, I'm going to let you tell our audience what the High Tech Act is in a, in a few minutes. And Ms. Galeski also uh, advises on electronic data transfer and the adoption of electronic medical records and other clinical information systems. A graduate of Wake Forest University Law School, Ms. Galeski previously served as Corporate Counsel and Privacy Officer for MISIS Healthcare Systems and Corporate Counsel with Laboratory Corporation of America Holdings, better known as LabCorp. Now, the purpose of this interview is to provide general information about significant developments in the healthcare industry. This interview is not intended as legal advice, as individual situations will differ and should be discussed with an expert and or lawyer. Alicia, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Steve. Well, I want to focus on privacy. What do we mean by privacy in the healthcare industry? Well, when we talk about privacy in the healthcare context, we're generally talking about health information about patients and the limits on how health information can be used and communicated to others. A critical piece of this is really about the rights a patient has to control how their health information is used and shared. I, Examples I, of... Yeah. Well, I was just going to say health information, it's kind of personal, um, it, maybe even more so than financial information. Definitely. You know, examples of health information include what doctor I'm seeing, what symptoms I'm displaying, what I've been diagnosed with, how I'm being treated for a medical condition, um, you know, what medicines I've been prescribed and, and whether I'm even taking them. And you're right, the, the privacy of patient health information is becoming an increasingly hot topic. And for good reasons, most people do consider information about their health care to be one of the most sensitive forms of personal information. Generally, patients want to feel assured that the information they share with their health care providers is going to be protect protected and it's not going to be shared for inappropriate purposes. I think we can all agree that the last thing a patient wants to worry about during a doctor's visit is whether 
their employer, their friends or neighbors are going to have access to the information that their doctor is taking down during the visit. Yeah. So before an act like HIPAA, did the law protect people's um, confidentiality? Yes, but not as obviously as it um, does under HIPAA. There are a patchwork of laws that govern uh, the privacy of all types of consumer personal information. And within that, this body of laws, there are many that govern the protection of health care information. Um, one law in particular that governs the protection of mental health and substance abuse information has been around for many, many years and predates HIPAA. One of the challenges we're seeing as more of this information becomes electronic is that the laws as drafted 20 or 30 or 40 years ago don't match up to the activities that are being conducted with that information now. So that does pose challenges for getting this information in circulation for healthcare purposes. It, it sounds not altogether different from what our country is facing with the release of wiki documents that now that, that all this information is stored electronically, old espionage rules probably aren't entirely uh, up to the uh, up to what we need them to be to protect uh, to, to protect secrets, and here personal secrets need need special protection now that we're in an electronic era. So true. Uh, the law is behind um, the technology curve in many ways, including this one. Um, but at the same time, you know the, these privacy concerns are at the forefront. But there are, are significant efforts being made to really promote the sharing of electronic health information to make access to this information easier for those involved in a patient's health care. And really, as a, as a result, more and more health information is being collected and stored and shared electronically. Yeah, so There's, wh- why, why is that happening? You know, I know doctors who, who used to keep their patients' medical records on index cards, and we're very happy with the system. Why, why are these rules coming into play to encourage people to switch to electronic health records? That's a great question. There's, there's a fairly widespread belief that more access and easier access to health information during the healthcare process leads to efficiencies in the quality of healthcare provided to patients. Much of the evidence tends to show that electronic health record technology, when it's used effectively, really does improve the quality of healthcare. It improves patient safety and, and really can lead to greater efficiencies among a community of providers that are treating a patient. And I think that makes really good sense to me. I, you know, in an ideal world, maybe we'd have one doctor who is smart enough to know everything and do everything we possibly could need. But once you specialize, um, once you've d- decided that the world is a better place for quality of, of, of doctors' abilities to do particular things, so you, so you compartmentalize these doctors into different groups and you know, the doc, my gerontologist who takes care of my general health is going to be different from the doctor who takes care of my hernia operation. Um, now they don't, only the gerontologist knows me regularly. Right. Um, it, it would right. be nice if there was more sharing of information, electronic medical records. Gosh, that's what a fabulous way to do that. So wh- how, how are we encouraging greater use of electronic health records? Well, I mean, you've just made the point that the federal government is pushing, and that is that community care, having a variety of providers engaged in a patient's health and having them all connected and in contact is the way to go. Um, 
you know, the the other side of the coin is that you know, as all of this information becomes easier to access and easier to share for good and valuable purposes, there's a danger that the information is too accessible and too easy to share for unauthorized purposes, and that those who have no need to access that information um, may may access it and misuse it. So the law it has is really changing in this area, and it's seeking to accomplish or to strike a balance really between encouraging um, the use of electronic health records and protecting this information in a way that patients feel comfortable that when they do share the information that it will be used for the, the highest and best purposes related to their health care. You know, um, I, I think so of what, these um, physicians as, um, you know, when we physicians are talking about how complex it is with all these, all these so many insurers, and you have to have different forms for every insurer. It just doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't it be nice if the federal government stepped in and said, hey, insurers, you got to use a single form t- for efficiency purposes. And, and it looks like this, the federal government has put into place encouragements on the other end that, that doctors ought to be using, a, uh, if not a single system, at least systems that communicate with each other so that patients' information can be shared across doctors' um, to, to optimize care, for example, somebody has uh, an allergy, you'd certainly want all your doctors to know about that allergy. Uh, are, are there specific things the government is doing that the public should be aware of to encourage doctors to um, use electronic records? Yes. So probably the most significant step to encourage the adoption of, of these electronic health record systems began in February of last year when Obama signed the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, Act, commonly referred to as the ARA. Um, the ARA included many provisions aimed at transforming our health care system from paper-based to electronic. Many, many of these provisions are set out in the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act, and it's commonly known as the HITECH Act. We're hearing a lot about that now. Um, the HITECH Act was really designed for the purpose of in- improving the quality, efficiency, and, and coordination of health care, and, and really did, did that by, um, with two main goals in mind. It, it provides modifications to HIPAA, and it also allocated significant financial incentives for health care providers to adopt and meaningful, meaningfully use electronic health record technology. Um, I'm happy to talk a little more about those, those two goals and how they are being accomplished um, now. I, I, one, one of the things I was wondering is, is uh, this ARA, this is very different from the health care reform legislation that passed. This passed first and is independent of, of uh, the efforts towards having everybody covered by insurance. It is. It's completely distinct from the insurance issue, although at its core, you know, it may have the same policy goals of efficiency and saving money at the end of the day and getting people better health care. But, yes, this is separate than the health care reform bill. I, um, I uh, see some of my colleagues talking about um, carrots in the system to encourage us to be um, prescribing medications electronically. So instead of handing the patient a prescription, I now hit a button and the prescription goes straight to the patient's um, pharmacy. By the time they get to the pharmacy, the medicine may be waiting for them. Was that part of this provision? Well, um, a a very large portion of the financial incentives created by the HITECH Act relate to meaningful use. Um, That's a big buzzword in the industry right now. It basically authorized the Center 
Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to provide $34 billion in financial incentives to physicians and hospitals that achieve meaningful use of certified electronic health record technology. Um, the final rule for meaningful use and the incentives um, were, were just published in July of this year. And generally, the, the incentive program requires healthcare providers to do several things. One, they have to use a certified electronic health record technology system in a meaningful manner. Um, that means that there are many detailed performance objectives and measures set out by the rule that um, need to be met in order for a provider to demonstrate that they are meaningfully using the electronic health record technology. Included within that is e-prescribing and the ability to submit different orders electronically. So that is one way that that, that goal is being fulfilled. Um, the other requirements of meaningful use is that a provider must participate in an electronic exchange of health information that improves the quality of care and they must submit information on specified clinical quality measures. Um, providers that achieve these very detailed and rigorous meaningful use requirements can receive incentive payments under the Medicare and Medicaid programs. Providers that participate in the Medicare and Medicaid programs stand to receive between $44,000 and $63,750 per individual provider. And hospitals stand to receive up to $11 million in cash incentives wow. in the next four to six years. So yeah. that's the carrot. Yeah, that um, could drive people's behavior. Here. There's a downside, and that is that those providers that fail to achieve meaningful use by 2015 will face reductions in Medicare reimbursement rates. You know, I look at this. It's fascinating. This sounds like it's going to create a treasure trove of information. You know, in, in the old days when, when people had their – when doctors had medical records on index cards, it would be impossible to collate data from multiple doctors and um, – and answer questions like, if patients are treated with this drug, do they tend to do better than if they're treated with that drug? But now you put all this information into an electronic system, um, the ability for the healthcare system to identify new, better approaches um, to managing patients' health, it just seems tremendous. It is tremendous. You're right. There is a mounting body of data that has some great uses. There is no lack of um, research and analytics that are in the process of being conducted on this data. Um, there's a process to de-identify data that removes all patient identifiers from the data and allows it to be studied so that um, different analytics can be generated for the improvement of health care. So that is one benefit of this mounting body of data. So, so At the that, same time, we have an increase in, in data that can be used for very good and valid purposes, um, and the law is stepping in to make sure that this data is protected in what new ways to mitigate against the risk of any misuse of that information. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Fellman. We're speaking today with Alicia Galeski, partner-elect with the law firm of Smith Anderson in Raleigh. Ms. Galeski is an expert on uh, information privacy and security, and we're discussing privacy issues related to health care, to the medical records, and in a few minutes we'll also be speaking about privacy issues related to 
email communication with your doctor, and to one of my favorite topics, doctor rating. So, Alicia, we clearly both see that there's a big upside benefit to the sharing of health information, but there's a downside to this too, isn't there? You have all this data that you can use for great purposes. Presumably, you have all the data that could presumably be used for nefarious purposes. So if um, if uh, my employer wanted to get information on my health in the days when the doctors had their uh, medical information on index cards, it might have been hard to get a hold of it and put it all together. But nowadays, with all this data in one electronic system, presumably somebody could look at all my health records and, and decide whether they want to insure me or not. They could look at all of a doctor's records and decide if they want to include that doctor in their health plan or not because maybe that doctor uses more expensive medicines, for better or worse, in their patients. Um, so are those some of the privacy issues that, that are of particular concern to electronic record systems? Those are all very important privacy considerations of consumers and and those practicing medicine. Um, you know, medical identity theft is on the rise. So, you know, there's the concern also that somebody can hack into a system and get information and, and pretend that they are another patient in order to get insurance coverage under that person's health insurance. So that's that's another risk. You know, the risks go on and on and are really unlimited um, if you think about it. But but, but we hope at the end of the day that, you know, um, the right people retain this data, they take care of it, and that they abide by the laws that they're bound by. Um, and we're really seeing a resurgence in compliance efforts in the healthcare industry. HIPAA's just been revised um, via the HITECH Act, and the primary goal of those revisions is to strengthen the existing regulatory scheme so that the electronic sharing of health information by providers is really encouraged by the providers and at the same time so that the patient can feel comfortable that their health information is being used and shared only for those good and valid purposes. So so are there specific differences in the rules um, now related to electronic records than, than we had in the paper record days? Yes. So back in 2003 when... HIPAA first, the privacy rule first went into effect. Um, the rules have been really the same until recently. And, and HIPAA, the HIPAA privacy rule generally provides that there must be a HIPAA-permitted purpose for a healthcare provider to use or disclose protected health information unless the patient has expressly authorized the use or disclosure of that information. And covered entities are bound by HIPAA. Covered entities are typically doctors, um, healthcare payers, insurance companies, and um, healthcare claims clearinghouses, which are technology vendors that reformat and process um, electronic healthcare claims for payment. So those entities have been bound by HIPAA. That's been the rule all along. Um, but in the last year, we've seen uh, some efforts to strengthen those rules. Uh, some of the changes include um, placing more responsibility on HIPAA business associates. So a business associate is generally an entity that provides a service to a covered entity, and, and that service requires that the business associate have access to patient health information. So that's one additional way that, that health information could be disclosed. Can you give um, me one, one concrete example of what something like Is that the person who cleans the office at my, um, at my <laughs> medical practice? or 
So a business associate is hired for the purpose of providing a service that requires access to, to documents. So the person cleaning an office would not typically be a business associate because their primary purpose is not to access health information, and any such access would be an incidental access under HIPAA. A, a concrete example of a business associate is an, a health, an information technology vendor that services an electronic health record system on behalf of a health care provider. Um, think of an administrative services organization that might provide administrative services to a group health plan, yeah. to an employer group health plan. My, if, if, I, if I hire transcription folks to do the transcription for me. Yes. You mentioned the, um, the, the people in charge of those health, um, health technology systems, the people who are selling these health technology systems. What with these rules about government carrots and big money for switching over to electronic systems, those companies must be experiencing phenomenal growth right now. <laughs> there is a huge market for their product. Um, their products have to be certified by a certification body designated by the federal government. And um, that's one challenge, it, sort of vendors deciding what their systems need to look like to, at the very least, uh, you know, allow the provider to meet the meaningful use requirements. And hopefully those systems that go above and beyond those minimal baseline requirements. But yes, we're seeing um, lots of marketing efforts on the part of vendors. Um, there are many options out there for systems that are certified, and hopefully, you know, vendors are willing to cooperate and collaborate with the providers they service um, because there there is going to need to be some customization down the road as these meaningful use rules continue to evolve. Um, so the law has stepped in and made these business associates, which would include a vendor, more responsible under HIPAA. So previously, business associates were only responsible for certain limited obligations under HIPAA through a contract that it entered into it with the covered entity. HITECH has changed this so that business associates are now directly bound by most of the provisions of HIPAA. So they're directly subject to uh, HIPAA and actions directly from the federal government as well as liable to covered entities that they serve. So in a lot of ways, HIP, uh, business associates are um, doubly liable now that the high-tech changes have gone into effect. So let me make sure I understand, because there's a lot of, of um, complex terminology here. But um, mm -hmm. let's say, I, you know, I'm seeing a patient, and then I decide, uh, you know, I go to a dinner party, and I start talking about that patient and their health, uh, um, and, and their health problems. Uh, to um, to my friends. Uh, is that something that's prohibited by HIPAA? You are at risk if you share information for a purpose that's not permitted under HIPAA. Generally, treatment, payment, and healthcare operations are permitted disclosures that can be made, and, and disclosing information at a dinner party would not fall within one of those permitted no, purpose I, buckets. I wouldn't think it would. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the new rules require the Department of Health and Human Services to investigate any complaint of a HIPAA violation um, by a covered entity if the preliminary investigation indicates violation due to willful neglect. Um, that, that borders willful neglect pretty closely. So I think you yeah. could expect if somebody complained about it to see an investigation from the Department of Health and Human Services there. If I did it by email, uh, would, would it be exactly the same? If I, you know, said, oh, mm -hmm. listen, you know, I had this celebrity in my office and here were her medical problems and right. you know, 
it's going to make it even easier for the Department of Health and Human Services to investigate you because you've got a written paper trail of your disclosure as opposed to a verbal one. So oh. I'd say that's worse in a lot of ways. Yeah, so that's interesting that email makes it easier to um, to, to, to have to, to cause problems but easier for them to track you down. Well, Very I wanted good. to talk about email for just a sec because I think this is a fabulous way – for, that I communicate with with all my colleagues all the time, and I think it's potentially a fabulous way for me to communicate and answer quick pa- um, quick questions for patients. Um, of course, uh, you know, when, sometimes when I do, I feel like I need to have the same kind of legal disclaimer a lawyer might feel before a radio interview. Um, can, but can you talk for a minute about privacy related to online patient-doctor communications? Sure. So there is a lot of this going on. Doctors are often communicating with their patients via email and and other online mechanisms, and there's a lot of efficiency that comes from this, and and a disclaimer is not a bad idea. At this point in time, there's really not a hard and fast rule under HIPAA that requires encryption of those communications, which I think is what you're asking. Do, do, Do I need to encrypt the emails to my patients so that they are locked down so that a third party can't hack into that email in transmission? Um, the HIPAA security rule mentions encryption. It includes it as an addressable standard under the rule, and basically that just means that a doctor needs to, to conduct an assessment to determine whether it's reasonable to implement encryption, and they need to base any conclusion on that assessment and document the assessment. And factors to consider in, in that determination are, are how much it costs to encrypt. Is it easy for me to encrypt? Can I can I get some encryption? software that makes it easy for me to communicate with my patients, and is it affordable? Those are the types of things you would want to consider when deciding to encrypt an email communication. So encryption is probably not a bad idea, but if a patient sent a doctor an email saying, uh, doctor, I need a refill on my my acne medicine, and the doctor wrote back, sure, I'll call it into your pharmacy, uh, they're not likely to get into big trouble. Not likely, as long as they've determined that you know, they they are, they have not addressed encryption um, for a reason that's documented. All right. Um, one of the things I'm very interested in is this online uh, this phenomenon of online doctor rating. Um, mm-hmm. There are these doctor rating websites. Uh, some of them will advertise. Uh, uh, have you had had a problem with your doctor? Rate them here, um, and that and that allow patients to make open comments. I started one of these doctor rating websites, but it just takes numerical information on um, patients' opinions about, the, about their satisfaction with their visit. you have any thoughts about privacy um, issues related to these online sites where the, the patients make open comments about, their, um, about the care they received? Mm-hmm. I do. There's a lot of this going on, too. A lot of social networking going on and you know, I think more and more of the healthcare industry is finding that it's a great way to market and share information and ideas, um, but it does pose some challenges to the patient-physician relationship at times. Um, interestingly, the American Medical Association has recently adopted a model social media policy that encourages physicians to manage their online presence in a way that protects patient privacy. Um, the, the, the model policy is available online. Um, and I would recommend anybody um, that's engaging in social media as, a, as as part of healthcare look at this policy because it's very helpful, very interesting. It generally encourages physicians to use privacy settings on networks to safeguard personal information to the extent they can. 
Um, the AMA is recommending that physicians routinely monitor their own Internet presence to make sure that the personal and professional information on their own sites and the content that gets posted about them by others is accurate and appropriate. Um, the policy calls on physicians to maintain appropriate boundaries of the patient-physician relationship in accordance with professional ethical, ethical guidelines, just as they would in any other context. So what do we take from that? It's prudent for physicians, number one, to, to check themselves out online to see if anybody is rating them to make sure that the ratings are accurate. Um, it, you know, physicians that find information about themselves online that they don't like um, should try to contact the website owner. And the best way to start there is to click on the terms of use to see if they've included a contact number. Um, so I would start there. So let's assume the worst. Let's say a doctor's on a website and sees information about the doctor that's just totally ridiculously wrong. Maybe I don't know if you have a specific legal meaning for the word defamatory, but let's say it was you know defamatory information, at least from the doctor's perspective. The doctor's bound by HIPAA, so they can't they can't even acknowledge that somebody is or isn't a patient of theirs, if I'm, as I would understand it. And so how, 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 from a practical standpoint, can a doctor deal with, with something like that? Can, can they go to the website owner and say, yes, that is a patient of mine, but that, that isn't how our interaction happened under HIPAA? That, hopefully the website has a flexible complaint policy where, you know, you can contact their attorney or whoever they've listed on on the site and and um, complain about you know false and defamatory information about me as a doctor on the website that that is one avenue it may not be a successful avenue you may get a response and you may not the reason you may not get a response is that the law um, often protects the website owner if the website owner did not have did not write the content so um, the individual that posted the content will often be responsible legally for any defamatory comments as long as the website owner did not modify uh, the content there. Yeah. Um, Seems like a little you know, bit of a tough situation if the if the if let's, the presumed patient is the one responsible. The website owner says, well, I, that's what they wrote. I'm not taking it down. If the doctor wanted to respond and say, well, just post my comment that says this is not the way it happened, this is, you know, something else happened, uh, I mean, boy, the lawyers would just eat you alive with the HIPAA um, privacy violation there, I would think. I agree. There's a, there's a bit of one-sidedness in favor of the patient in that situation where the patient's allowed to publicize, but arguably the, the physician can't respond to address the, the complaint um, due to the concern that this is not a HIPAA-permitted purpose and that they would be um, confirming that they treat the patient. So I agree. It's a difficult situation and one that might eventually warrant calling your lawyer yeah. um, and trying to get the information taken down without having to respond to it on the site. Well, fortunately, most people love their doctors, and so it's, it's less of an issue than I think people would, 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 would think at first. So um, uh, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Do you have any final w words of wisdom for our audience? Well, sure. You know, at the end of the day, I think all of the measures that are in place and in, enrolling in, in on the adoption of health information technology are about improving the quality of our health system. You know, in the short term, we're seeing that there are many challenges among all stakeholders involved in these efforts. And 
it seems to me that collaboration and cooperation among everybody involved is the key at the end of the day to achieving the goals that I think are attainable and very worthy since at the end of the day, this is all about helping patients receive better care and improving the quality of our healthcare system. Thank you so much. Thank you. In an effort to protect our health information, you can see there's a heck of a lot going on. I find the, the whole area to be exceedingly complex. Here we have one small aspect of our healthcare system, and it's incredibly complicated. And I think that is typical of, of why we have this program, that we have this very comprehensive health system in the United States with all these different parts, and each one of them uh, comprises an in-depth field in itself. Uh, this is the kind of thing that we're going to have to pay close attention to as we evolve our health system to make it an even better way of, of caring for people. Well, that's our show for today. I, I hope you've enjoyed it and um, hope you'll join us next time. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until next week, have the best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.